We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness this week is Kate Moyle, who's a psychosexual and relationship therapist. You might have seen her on the BBC Three TV series Sex on the Couch. Like me, she trained with Relate, the UK's largest couple counselling service, and is a member of COSRAT, the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists. She also has a podcast, the Sexual Wellness Podcast, which has a new season where I'll be guesting. But on this time round, she's a guest on my program, and our topic today is body image. I was thrilled when Kate suggested this topic because in my experience, it's one of the biggest factors in stopping couples from enjoying a happy and relaxed sex life. In 2014, the British Social Attitudes Survey found that only 63% of 18 to 34-year-old women and 57% of 35 to 49-year-old women were satisfied with their bodies. Are you surprised by those statistics? No, I'm not really surprised about it at all because I think, well, as you said, it feels like it impacts so many, if not almost everyone to some degree that we're working with in the therapy room. And I always think that that is quite a good sample of what people might be struggling with in everyday life. To be perfectly honest, I was surprised it was so few because I think when you really drill down, I've always thought I'm quite relaxed about my body image. But, you know, if you push down really hard, I'm sort of beginning to go a bit flabby under the arms and things like that. And I mean, one half of me sort of thinks, oh, for goodness sake, Andrew, grow up. (laughs) But another part of me doesn't want to listen to that. And it is difficult. I wonder what you see in your practice. I mean, I specifically, suppose, focus on the sexual side of things. So my practice is majoritively psychosexual therapy, and I'm also a qualified relationship couples therapist. The focus tends to be on the sexual side of things. So I think that a huge amount of what I'm seeing is the anxiety of being both emotionally and physically exposed in front of another person when it comes to sex. And that can be influenced by what's happening in the room in the moment, by what's going on in our heads, by culture, by comparison culture, by what we judge ourselves to be in comparison to the norm or what is expected of us. And it is a bit of a melting pot of all of those things, I think. But how does body image exactly impact on the kind of sex we're having? Give me some sort of practical ways it impacts. So a practical way may be if we are feeling self-conscious, that we are then distracted. Distraction, we know, is one of the biggest interrupters of the sexual arousal cycle, of desire, of keeping us in the moment. And at its worst, it can cause panic. It can cause high anxiety, performance anxiety, sexual dysfunction. And really, we can see a wide reach of the impact. So some people might experience something called spectatoring, which is basically where they are kind of having a sexual experience, but it's almost like they're outside of themselves looking in. They can feel completely kind of disjointed from their body. So 
they aren't able to feel connected to what's happening. They feel unable to let go with their partners. So that might mean that they are unable to experience pleasure fully or reach orgasm. There might be an impact on sexual functioning, which is actually their body isn't working in the way that they want it to be. They aren't able to achieve normal sexual functioning. So whether that might be ejaculation, maintaining or achieving an orgasm for women, relaxing the pelvic floor muscles enough to have successful or pleasurable or enjoyable, comfortable penetration, lubrication, a huge, huge range of things. But those, I suppose, are the the practicals that we might see that are more obvious. Aside from that, also, we know that people can have psychologically and emotionally things going on that they might not show a partner, that they might not physically display, but there's something, an internal process that they are experiencing. I remember one client who was a woman of a certain age, and she was beginning to get a bit of a moustache, and she didn't want her husband to kiss her in case he actually felt that. And can you imagine the impact that would have on a relationship? Mm, Absolutely, because when we feel anxious about something, our most natural response is to avoid. And I would argue that actually, if couples aren't having sex, it tends to not be the immediate thing that brings them, for example, to my therapy room or the therapy room of any of my colleagues or people at our practice. But the knock-on effect of that, which is a pulling away of physical intimacy or intimacy or avoidance of each other or both partners or one partner feeling undesired by the other. And that kind of knock-on effect tends to be, I think, the trigger for bringing people to therapy a lot more actually than the lack of the physical act of sex in itself. I often, when I'm sort of going deep into something with a couple, you often find that sort of moment where people say, well, when this happened, when I actually stopped allowing you to come into the bathroom, when I was having a shower, that was probably the moment when we should have actually talked about it and we should have actually got help, not five years later after an affair or something like that. It's often a sort of an early warning sign, isn't it? Mm, Well, when we become self-conscious, we become uncomfortable to a degree. And a lot of couples describe that, or it might be postnatally or during infertility or after an injury or after an illness or after a cancer treatment or a medical treatment. So after a change, quite a lot of time, we might not necessarily be physically showing a change or an alteration, but we might feel differently. And that self-consciousness can even come about from that. Even if our partner reassures us, even if our partner says, I love your body, it doesn't matter. Yes, it's changed, but I don't mind. There's so much more to you than what is just physically there. If we feel that way, that can mean that we start to manipulate our behavior in order to manage our feelings. For example, you know, I won't have sex in this position because you might see my stomach roll sort of kind of thing. And how can you enjoy sex if you're forever trying to manipulate your body into a position where you feel it doesn't look bad? Mm. I mean, that is so sad, isn't it? It's really difficult. And, you know, there are practical things we can do, you know, talking to people about if they want to wear certain items of clothing or to change the lighting or to have something like music, which helps them to relax. You know, there are things that we can do, central cues that we can mix up. But fundamentally, the best sexual experiences people have are when they are comfortable and confident and relaxed. And it kind of goes beyond just the way that we look at ourselves. It's the way that we look at ourselves through the eyes of our partners. And what we do is we make assumptions. And those assumptions, it might not actually be our partner's perspective, but we assume it is our partner's perspective because we think, okay, well, what they expect me to look like is X or who they expect me to look like is X. And 
that is often most reflected back to us from the media. And this is something that, as a man, I just really do not understand. So you're going to have to help me with this, because actually what most men want, and I promise you, is an enthusiastic partner. That really is number one. And how thin they are is probably number 37 in the list of things that we would like. But for some reason, that is incredibly important to women, that enthusiasm, they would probably put that about number 79 on the list that they think men have. Why is there such a big miscommunication about what's actually fundamentally important? I mean, I think historically, women have been, and you know, we see it, we see that youth and beauty are like prioritised by a lot of big publications, by the way that things are advertised, by the way that images are presented to us. But I think that a lot of the time there has been a lot of judgment around how women appear or how men look or how women should look. And that can be incredibly difficult to not internalise. And it's not just women. I mean, I work with a huge amount of young men who are really, really struggling with how they believe they are expected to be and to perform and what their body should be like, what they should sexually be like, what their penises should be like. And there is just this huge kind of pressure. But actually, you know, one of the things we see when people build connections is that the physical side of things or attraction goes way beyond just the shop front, so to speak, that we see that there is much more going on. But we have to, I suppose, trust people to also believe that. And we have something called the halo effect, which is where we see that people that are considered attractive. Now, again, we have a problem here because attractive or beautiful or aesthetic is a subjective experience. We know that. But we see that people that are considered objectively attractive, say, whether it's models or things like that, that it's perceived that they get further or that they might be more desirable or more likable. And I think it's incredibly difficult because as humans, again, what we always want to do is fit into the norm or fit into what is expected. And if we consider ourselves to lie outside of that, then that can create a real conflict for us. Now, obviously, what we see is that self-confidence is not necessarily aligned with exactly how we look. And Actually, what we talk about when we talk about body confidence a lot, it's not necessarily how we look, it's how we feel. But we are receiving messages all the time that how we look is important. We should change how we look. It should be manipulated. We should be aiming to look a certain way. I mean, we just have to look at the marketing of products particularly aimed at women. You know, for example, the feminine hygiene industry telling us that our vulvas should smell a certain way or our bodies should smell a certain way or shouldn't smell a certain way. And how that if women or girls from a really young age are exposed to that kind of material, then of course, that's going to change what they think they should be like. So this isn't just aesthetics, it goes much further than that. So give us a little bit of an insight. Can you remember the age you were when you suddenly realised that your your body wasn't just something to climb trees and to chase friends around the playground and had all these other expectations on it? I think it was probably even as young as 10, 11. I mean, maybe a bit before. I went to mixed schools my entire life. So I have never not been around the opposite sex. And I think that you know, and much of my childhood was spent with us not realising, not not realising, but not really minding the gender differences or what was expected of that. As you said, we were all kind of climbing trees and you know playing football and covered in mud. But 
I think that there is definitely a shift probably as you're approaching puberty. I think that now, arguably, a lot of people would say it's younger. But I suppose that becomes a self-consciousness or when you notice that things are starting to change. And I think those kind of conversations for young people start changing around that age as well, because suddenly with the changes, there's a curiosity and a curiosity what those changes mean. And obviously what we know about puberty and hormonal changes is that they happen at different times, different stages, that all bodies change in different ways and look different. But when we are younger, I think a lot of people feel that they just want to look the same. And I think around that age is when you start to differentiate more. And so how was that transition for you? I think it's always been okay for me. I'm an incredibly small person. I'm only about five foot tall. And so I think I'd kind of got used to being a little bit of an outlier ever since a young age. But I was also really lucky that I was raised and the people around me and friends, we were all valued by different things rather than just aesthetics, rather than just how we looked, you know, how we were doing or what we were good at or what we liked. And I think I had a very rounded approach to everything, I suppose. And actually that was reflected back to me a lot. And as a friendship group, we were probably all quite diverse in what we were good at, bad at, liked, didn't like. And so the difference was almost as celebrated as the similarity. Because I always find that a woman's relationship with her body is only as good as her mother's relationship was with her body. Do you find that too? I think that's definitely a theme. I mean, personally, for me, I was taught growing up that bodies were just bodies and that's how they were. And there wasn't really that much attention. Like there was never a set of weighing scales in my house, for example. I cannot even remember the last time that that was something that even crossed my mind apart from, you know, for a medical examination. It was not something that was really even there as the conversation because it was considered not important. And I think as parents, and you know, now as a parent myself, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is modelling. What kind of things do we want to model for our children? What things do we want to show is important or not important? And that messaging kind of is quite wound into a lot of stuff in our life and growing up. But I think that I was just always brought up to be like, well, a body's a body and it does what it's meant to do. And you should be grateful for the fact that it's working in the way it's meant to and doing everything that should, and you should enjoy it. Were your parents relaxed about nakedness? I mean, my parents were both sports people, so they would just walk around naked. My father had been a rugby player. My mother played lacrosse and hockey and all those other things. They were perfectly relaxed with being naked, where there was no such things as dressing gowns to go from the bedroom to the bathroom. It seemed terribly normal, but now I sort of realised that was an incredible gift that I was given. Mm, I think that sounds like it models as just the normality or the kind of like, oh, well, you know, not a big deal. I think there's that like not a big deal-ness of it, which for me so much of it kind of ties into sex. I often talk to clients of mine about nudity, about how they feel naked, about if they, for example, walk around their house naked or if they cover themselves up when they come out of the shower, if they're in the bathroom in front of their partners or not, or if they get dressed in front of their partners. And I think there is something in that because there's a beingness. I don't know how to, I can't quite put my finger on what the word is for it. I suppose it's comfort, isn't it? Or acceptance. And there are huge cultural differences. I now live in Germany and the difference between sauna culture in England Mm. and Germany are completely and utterly opposite. For hygiene and health reasons, you are not allowed to wear 
a bathing costume in the sauna because it's going to trap the sweat. In the UK, it's the complete and utter opposite. You must wear something in the sauna because otherwise your genitals are going to drip nasty, horrible things all over the place. Once on a holiday, someone German in the sauna described it as a textile-free zone. And I, <laughs> I still remember it to this day. I loved it. It's like such a good way of describing it. The other thing I always tell my clients, and they just can't believe this, but here in Germany, you could go to a workshop. I went to one where the announcement went that this was a clothes-optional space. Now, if you're going to do something like that in England, you do this on like day three and you have an undressing ritual and you're, you're really building up to this. Here in this workshop, people started taking their clothes off straight away and he said, not yet. <laughs> so in Germany, you have to stop people taking their clothes off. In England, you have to sort of coax them for about three weeks before they'll even take their vest off sort of kind of thing. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is such a big difference? Well, particularly in the east of Germany, they had very much a culture of nudism. And I'm in Berlin, there's lakes all around Berlin, and most of them will have a section where people are naked. Mm. And once you've actually got over it, it is absolutely wonderful because you see all shapes and sizes. Whereas in England, the only naked bodies you see are models who've been airbrushed or pornography. You don't actually see what I'd call regular bodies. And regular bodies come in all shapes and sizes. And within about five minutes, you don't really start noticing the differences. But it is wonderfully liberating. Mm. And how's about this for the world's most embarrassing experience? I was taken by my in-laws for a sauna day. And this was a particularly chic sauna where there were seven or eight different kinds of saunas. There was an experience that we ended up doing where you had to be naked and cover each other in special types of mud to purify the Germans are naked with their in-laws. <laughs> Can you imagine anything more embarrassing? <laughs> but I did it. And, you know, the world did not end. Mm. Yeah, I think that that is something that is incredibly important, that actually nudity is okay. And, mm. you know, I've worked with people who think that either you're parading around or you're hiding away. And just that sort of idea where this client was at a conference with a, another female friend, and they always shared a hotel at this conference to save money. And each of them would go into the bathroom and change privately. And mm. I said, well, what would it be like if you actually both changed in the room. And so my client did that and it started a conversation that was just so wonderful for her with her friend about how they felt about their bodies and they were able to sort of come clean in a very sort of relaxed sort of kind of way that actually allowed them both to feel better. But somehow, even amongst friends and you're sharing the same room, you have to go into the bathroom to actually change. It seems very sad, really, doesn't it? I guess for me, the word that just keeps coming up as you're talking is shame. And it's like the shame of, is it the shame of being ourselves? I don't know. It's like the shame of someone seeing us or the shame of us being exposed or the shame of being vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And that exposeness, that being seen for kind of how we are is really scary for people. But I think that there is an inextricable link that people have 
between nudity and assuming sex or assuming something sexual. And yes, obviously there is a link between them. We see that, you know, the majority of people have sex unclothed. But for me as a psychosexual therapist, a lot of the time when I'm working with people, we're looking at how sex is at one end of the scale and what they might have done is pulled away from everything that might potentially lead to sex and that might include nudity. So putting on clothes is creating barriers. Putting on clothes is creating protection because sex is something that has become linked with fear, anxiety, stress, negativity. And there's just something in like what you're saying that sounds so liberating about where you are. You're saying there is no shame in walking around naked in a sauna or on a beach by the lakes and that that feels, to me at least, like a much more positive way of being. So if people are thinking, hmm, my body image is a little bit skewed, what advice would you give? One of the things that I would think about is where did you get your messages about body image from? And our narratives, you know, our internal narratives are a lot of the time invisibly inherited, absorbed, integrated, whatever word you want to use. We pick up a lot of messages and narratives, both consciously and unconsciously. And it might be something like, as you said, that our parents walked from the bathroom to the bedroom with no clothes on. And we're like, oh, okay, well, that's what happens at home in my context. So that must be okay. And the opposite might be true. For example, if we never saw anyone unclothed or it was very kind of secretive or private, we're like, okay, well, that must be okay. Because particularly as children, we can only make sense of what we're seeing or what we're experiencing, unless it gets corrected or changed at a later date or unless you know our parents say to us do you know what that's what we do at home but it's not what everybody does everywhere that's just what works for us so I think that starting to think about that also one of the things that I say when thinking about this is think about the changes enormous changes particularly that have happened in different generations you know we've seen huge huge shifts so what might have felt protective or productive or helpful or the norm in one generation might not have been for the next one, but that translation or that change or that shift might not have carried through. So we might need to then update our own narratives or blueprints, or at least think about them and think about if they're still serving us. And what I often suggest to women is to be aware of when there are conversations that I would call body shaming, because Mm. lots of women bond by discussing how much they hate different parts of their body and how much weight they've got to lose. And suddenly one person starts and everybody joins in to be part of the gang. And first of all, to notice how often that's happening. And number two, to absent yourself from those conversations. What do you think of that idea? Mm, Yes, or to push back. We don't have to agree with those things. And I think a lot of it is how we have been socialized or taught to be. I think a lot of it is comparison culture. I think a lot of it is, I don't know how to correctly phrase this, but no, a lot of it has been about, okay, well, this is how we are valued. This is how we should value ourselves. And this is how we should value others. And we have the potential to change that. And I think one of the things that social media, particularly Instagram has done is, yes, there is a lot of negatives and a lot of comparison culture and a lot of looking at perfect bodies. But there is also a lot of people really pushing back. The body positivity movement is embracing diversity, whether it's body size, body color, body function, disability, ability, 
ethnicity. What we're seeing is this huge wave of particularly women, but some men saying, this is my body, this is how it is, and I love it. And I think it's amazing. It's embracing of things like stretch marks, of cellulite, of your word you used earlier, fat rolls, of just body normality. And Jamelia Jamil talks about something called body neutrality. So kind of instead of being body positive or body negative, body neutral, I don't think about my body that much. I just accept it as it is. And that feels like a good and comfortable place for me. I like that term body neutral. Mm. That's a a wonderful attitude to have. Mm, That it's not taking, my body isn't taking that much of my attention or that much of my, I'm not that preoccupied by it. But what we then see is, I suppose, combating or kind of pushback movement, which is this body positivity, body acceptance movement, where we are seeing beautiful people, however they look, but just embracing it, who are happy and saying, this is me and I'm happy with it. And that can be enormously influential. And I think it's really important for young people who are, for example, coming onto social media. It might be, if not the biggest way that they are being exposed to worldwide information or culture in itself, that they can see that and that it is embraced and that people are celebrating it. And for me, that is really, really cool. There's a phrase I heard recently, which I think is just wonderful. So I'm going to share it with you today. And that is your body is not an excuse or my body is not an excuse. Because generally when people start talking about their body, did you see what I did? The first thing I said was I'm going a bit flabby under the arms. I think they're called bingo wings. And I'm sort of making an excuse for myself. And to actually say to yourself, your body is not an excuse is, I think, really quite powerful. What Mm. do you think? I think it's very powerful. And I am, from a personal perspective, have had quite a changing relationship with my body. I've never had any medical problems. I was pregnant, had my first child, and then had miscarriages, infertility, and was diagnosed with secondary infertility and was essentially told in quite a an abrupt way that my body was broken and no longer served that purpose and ah. that that would it would no longer be possible for me to do what I'd hoped to do to grow my family. And there has been quite an interesting relationship in terms of that, not only, you know, multiple surgeries and procedures and IVF and hormones, a lot of things that changed my body, which had never previously inverted commas failed me. And I think that that's also an important part of the conversation when it comes to body confidence. Because for me, I work with a lot of people in their 30s, a lot of couples in their 30s, a lot of people struggling with infertility and things. And that can massively change how someone feels about their body, even though it might not appear to be any different to anyone else. And what we see a lot of the time with things like that is that people say, oh, you guys have been married five years thinking about kids. And that couple are thinking, yes, we have been trying for seven years, actually, and it's not working. And that relationship with self, that relationship with body is hugely impacted by that. But because everything appears, as we know, a lot of the time, infertility is invisible. Body confidence can play a huge, huge part in that, as with miscarriage, as with male infertility, uh, azoospermia, for example, men who have little or no sperm, again, invisible. And so I think that it's an important part of this conversation because we see when people have, uh, let's pick an obvious example, 
cancer. I actually just interviewed the team from Sex with Cancer and they're amazing and doing amazing work about this. But we typically might see symptoms or see things which might indicate that someone might be having a difficulty with their health. And mental health also is invisible. And some disabilities are visible, some are not. And so I think when we talk about body image, we're always just thinking, okay, well, this is about how I look. But actually, it's about how my body functions. It's about how my body feels. It's about, it's a big overarching theme, I suppose. So I'm going to say it again, because it sounds like it's an important thing to say again. Your body is not an excuse. And I think we should be focusing far more. I mean, this is partly because of my age. As I think I've said, I'm 61. Or am I 62 now? I think I'm 62 now, actually. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> that actually how it functions, your flexibility and what you can actually do is far more important than how big your belly is or how good it looks because its functionality ultimately is what really counts. Mm. Incidentally, if people are interested, I have a very good podcast with a couple who had long-term infertility problems and actually did finally have a child themselves. And I interviewed them five weeks after the baby was born about the differences in the whole journey. So look out for that one in my list, because I think if that speaks to you, you'll find that interesting. So what about men? Because most men want to support their wives, full stop. But actually, they know that if their wives are relaxed about their bodies, that everybody wins. So how can men put it? Because what they say to me is, oh, I always compliment her. They know that saying anything about their body is a complete and utter no-no area. And they say, you know, I love you, you look wonderful. But somehow that's not being heard. So what can they do and how can they get through and how can they be heard? Help us men out. I think something that we all want to feel is heard, whether it's a heterosexual relationship, same-sex relationship, kind of big asterisks here. Men also really struggle with body confidence. But I think sometimes a conversation along the lines of, oh, do you want to talk about it? Or why do you think you're feeling like that? Or what is it that's made you feel that way? Or has something set this off or triggered these thoughts? Can offer people an opportunity just to say, yeah, do you know what? Something happened at work today and it just really knocked my confidence and maybe it's about that. Or what we often see is also that events kind of happen around us that might trigger a conversation and that can bring something to our attention. And I think that actually those conversations we're not taught as couples to have or to easily have. And as you said, we're kind of taught it's a no-go zone. And so we don't go there at all. But I think if you're able to as a couple, actually opening up a conversation saying, well, should we talk about what's bothering you? Or is there anything that has started this? And, you know, we can have the confirmation bit, the recognition bit, the reassurance bit as a part of that. But sometimes we just need to get stuff off our chest. And I would say to men, don't get defensive because we're the centre of our lives. If our wives are not happy with their bodies, we immediately think it's something we've said or something we've done. And so we're immediately saying, oh, there's no flies on me. And that's actually not very supportive. It's much better to say, tell me about it. Mm. How can I help? What would be useful? And I love the Gottman exercises, you know, the I feel statements and saying, you know, I'm sorry that you're feeling like that. I feel like I love your body the way it is, but I'd love to know like, if there's anything we can do to help you. What do you think might be helpful? As you said, that kind of reframing or mirroring back, because we can only talk from our own 
opinion. And we know this, that when people are really struggling with body confidence, a thousand people could tell them that they think they're beautiful, attractive, desirable, whatever the word is. But if they don't feel that way about themselves, it is not enough to correct the, the messaging. And actually, you can never give too many compliments, but they've actually got to come really from the heart because there are times when we actually see our partner and, you know, the way the sunlight comes through the window in the morning and you think, gosh, you know, my partner is really gorgeous. But you don't actually say that because, you know, you're rushing for the shower yourself or you're thinking about something else. It's just a thought that crosses your mind and you don't share it. Mm. Share it. If you're thinking about your partner during the day, send a text, not just thinking about you, but, you know, maybe even flirting. I mean, flirt with your partner, send them sexy texts, you know, that top on you today. Wow. You know. We spend so much time switching ourselves off. I think it's really important when we do have those moments that we don't keep them to ourselves. We communicate them. Mm. And we know from the um, like dual response model of sexual arousal, we talk about brakes and accelerators. So what are the things that kind of pump the brakes and what are the things that encourage the accelerators? So much of the time feeling connected to our partners, desired by our partners feeling attractive to our partners, feeling a boost in self-confidence, feeling good about ourselves because we were given a compliment or because our partner paid us attention or because they noticed. They are real accelerators when it comes to our sex lives. So I've got an imaginary couple listening to this at the moment who are in a bit of a rut with their sex life. What would be your top three tips for getting back the passion? I think one of the biggest tips and it's something that every sex and relationships kind of expert or person working in the space would say is communication. I think the hardest thing to do so often is to communicate. I think that is the bridge for tackling anything to do with this, but the irony being often the hardest person to talk to about these things is the person that we're having sex with. And I would suggest having that conversation, using the I statements, doing it at a time outside of sex, outside of the bedroom. So not kind of in the moment, but actually having a conversation about like what's not working here or what should we do differently or what would we like to explore? I find that if you let people say what's not working, they get into a very negative space. I would much rather them talk about what is working or remembering a time which was really good mm. and then saying, how can we have more of that? Because that gets them relaxed and open. You know, what isn't working? The danger is you're going to get a long list and that's <laughs> not going to help creativity in the bedroom. Mm, no, I completely agree with you. So I call it positive inquiry. If anything negative comes up, you say, thank you. That's really useful. It's useful to know, I don't know, hygiene is a problem. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But, you know, what is it you said that you liked? A, let's talk a bit more about that. And what you'd like, I think, is really important to actually think about what is it that you like? Mm. That's quite a difficult thing to answer, really, because we're told that's selfish to talk about what I like. And also, it's not encouraged, is it, in any way? So it's not just we're told that it's selfish, but we're not really encouraged to explore sexuality. There's an irony in the fact that we are told not to kind of think about sex, have sex, do sex, anything before the age of 16, which is the legal age of consent, at least in the UK. And then suddenly you turn 16 and it's totally allowed and you should know exactly what you're doing, be an expert, <laughs> ask no questions, and you should be a pro. 
I mean, like, how does that set us up for the rest of our sex lives? I do not know. Well, it doesn't because we see that there is a huge struggle with sex in general. That in itself is very problematic for me, but we carry all of that stuff with us. So your number one tip is communicate. What would be the second thing that you would do? The second thing I would do is explore kind of different types of touch on your own. And then you can show them to your partner. And I think a big part of body confidence is about body education. You know, we're most scared or afraid or anxious about or avoidant of what we don't know. And so I often talk to people about kind of sex education or body education being self-education, which is just exploring your body head to toe, different types of touch, whether it's in bed or in the shower. You know, we're not just talking about masturbation as our pleasure here. We're talking about body exploration, getting to know your body, body familiarity. Because for some people, what they might find most erotic about being touched is like down the back of their neck or down the side of their neck, or they really don't feel comfortable, for example, with hands on their stomach. And so they can then say to their partner, okay, well, do you know what I've realized that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable is if you have your hands on my stomach. So could we try and avoid that? Because then I'll be able to feel a bit more relaxed if we set that as a ground rule. Different pressures of touch, types of touch as well. And I think, again, it's something we're not encouraged to do. We can start to do that ourselves and then we can take that into our relationship. And the third thing? And the third thing, prioritize it, you know, make time. I think modern life especially, but we just, again, expect, this is a big problem with the the sexual messaging, we just expect sex and relationships to work. And when they don't, we just think, oh my God, what is wrong with me? I am broken. This is a problem. Our relationship isn't working. Maybe we're not right to get, I mean, all these spiraling thoughts. And these things don't change themselves. Nothing else in life changes. If we're unhappy with our job, we don't just stay there and wait for another job to come along. We have to go and get it. If we want to be fitter, we have to exercise more. If we want to learn to cook, we have to start exploring different recipes or buying different things or we want to learn a skill. I mean, we do it naturally with everything else in life apart from sex and relationships. And would you like to hear my top implement that will improve a couple's sex life if they have children? Yes, please. It is a lock on the bedroom door. (laughs) And I can't tell you how controversial that is because the thought is that parents have to be available 24-7 for their children and a lock on the door is wrong. You know, I've had couples that say to me, but what if the house is burning down? I said, your children can shout fire. You know, you can be off for a while. You can lock the door. You can say, this is our private space and our private time. And that is a way of prioritizing your sex life. Get a lock on your bedroom door. And I wonder how many people have one. Not Not very many. many. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of joining our supporters circle and becoming a supporter of this podcast is not only do you help us make more of them, but you get the chance to write in and at higher levels of membership, there are even more benefits. So somebody who's written in is this correspondent. My problem is that my husband used to go down on me the first few months we dated, and it was great. But then I got pregnant and he said he felt weird doing it because I was pregnant. But it's been two years since our daughter was born and he still won't go down on me. 
I hate this because he demands I go down on him, and if I refuse it, it causes a huge fight. I mean, like a really ugly fight, and I want to keep peace because my daughter ends up suffering from our fighting. What's more is that we do almost everything he wants in bed that I don't like at all and has the nerve to ask me for more things I don't want to do. I don't like giving head to someone who doesn't return the favour. He wants to do anal and says, you'll like it. You just have to try it and you'll see. This literally makes me cry just thinking about how screwed up our sex life is. I'm on the brink of having an affair. I used to have a sex drive which was high and now I don't even want to be near him. P.S. I feel nothing during intercourse with him, so I'm literally just left with my hand if I want any type of orgasm. Oh dear, any help, please? Mm, I think it's an example of habits or patterns that we see couples get into quite a lot. So there might be a trigger for what makes one or both partners feel uncomfortable. Sex and pregnancy is a really interesting topic in itself. A lot of people feel that it means that it's a no-go zone or they don't feel comfortable. And what we're talking about here is normal pregnancies, not high-risk pregnancies, where, for example, sex might not be advised. But it's interesting this couple have got into a pattern and now they don't know how to come back out of it or it's become a habit or it's become ingrained. And clearly there is a struggle with communication going on or an openness going on because there don't seem to be clear boundaries about what's okay and what's not okay. And in regards to the part about desire, what we know is that desire is so largely responsive. And so, for example, it's not a surprise at all that we see a lack of or drop in or lack of openness or lack of wanting, lack of desiring sex when sex becomes negative. And when I say sex, I mean sexual experiences or sexual contact, not just penis and vagina penetration, because the meaning of sex has changed. It's not fun or pleasurable or connecting anymore. And therefore, we don't want to go towards something which is giving us a negative emotional reaction. There is an amazing book and TED Talk by a colleague and a friend of mine called Mind the Gap by Dr. Karen Gurney. And she is one of the best experts I know about desire and writes about this a lot. And I think that for me, there needs to be a reframing so that this couple can come back together if they want to. And it's obviously causing a lot of friction because there are lots of unmet needs. He sounds really quite angry to me. Does he sound angry to you? I suppose, I mean, with the limited information, I I mean, I think they both do. It's clearly not working for both of them. And I wonder what it would be like if you both actually talked about what it is you're angry about. I mean, sex might be some of it, but I think there's a whole load of other things that both of you are angry about. I wonder how the child has changed your relationship. And I wonder if there are some stuff that's not been resolved between the two of you there that you're bringing into the bedroom to try and fight about there because it feels safer to argue about anal sex rather than the way that each of you are parenting. I don't know what the cause of the anger would be, but do you think that pregnancy and anger can sometimes go together? Yeah, I think they definitely can because pregnancy is an enormous change. It's for lots of couples, you know, a lot of pressure, a financial pressure, which we are expecting a future pressure. You know, it depends also sometimes if pregnancy is a surprise. It might be something that a couple didn't quite feel ready for. It might be something that they weren't planning. I think there is a whole host of emotions that completely changes one person's body, but it also changes both partners' roles in a relationship. It can bring up quite gendered roles as well. And particularly in terms of 
domesticity. So I, I think absolutely in what you said is sex can become the thing that we can argue about if we can't argue about everything else. And why is oral sex so controversial? Because the topic, my wife won't give me oral sex and my husband won't give me oral sex, are the number one and number two sexual topics on my website. You know, it creates huge passion Mm. or huge anger rather than passion, I'm afraid. Passion is too positive. What is it about oral sex that is so divisive like that? I think it's very intimate. And so for lots of people, it's, I suppose innately, it's very sexual in terms of it being kind of body parts to faces rather than like face to faces in terms of the sexual acts. And I think that for lots of people, experiences can be quite negative and there can be less communication that we might experience things that we don't like about other people's bodies, it's all quite unavoidable in terms of oral sex. It's all very kind of upfront and personal. But I think that it is a way that we give and receive pleasure in a very intense way. And actually that can become a bit of a power play, I think, sometimes. Mm. How do you suggest making this a less difficult topic for this couple? I think that they, as you said, need to kind of have a discussion about really like what is going on here. You know, my suspicion would be that if they're not meeting each other at the same level with a conversation about this, that it's also likely kind of going on elsewhere. But it's also about discussing balance, but discussing, okay, well, look, how do we change this? What do we both need to be different in order for this to work? And that might be something that's completely outside of sex. It feels like this is a conversation that they need somebody to help them with, to be perfectly honest. I think that if the two of them at the moment start talking about it without somebody there to facilitate it, they're just going to tear chunks out of each other. Mm. And we know that these are the conversations that psychosexual therapists have a lot. And the College of Sexual and Relationship Therapists, CRSRT, have an amazing directory of qualified psychosexual relationship therapists in the UK. So if anyone is listening to this who is thinking, how do I even go about looking for a psychosexual therapist, that, that is where I would recommend people go. And it is wonderful to be able to talk with somebody who's not going to be embarrassed about talking about sex because it's either a joke or a brag or a you know a funny story and there are other ways of talking about sex as well mm, absolutely and i think you know people become psychosexual therapists largely because they can have those conversations and there's so much that happens in the offices and the rooms of psychosexual therapists where but i mean the sign above the door is basically it's okay to talk about sex here and that makes them quite unique environments So thank you very much for being with me today. The question is, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful is relationships. Like that was quite an easy one for me to answer. And I think my relationships with my family, both kind of family of origin and kind of family of choice, but also friendships, you know, as a therapist, the relationships I have with the people I'm working with, with clients, with friends, colleagues, but it's very, gosh, have my dog. <laughs> but, you know, I think there is something about that connection, which is feeding and exciting. And without that, everything happens a bit in a vacuum. So relationships is probably not a surprising or original answer, but it's definitely the answer I think I would give. And connection is really important for us. And actually, when the connection disappears, 
we feel completely utterly bereft. Mm. I think it's what makes us human. And the there was my dog. Okay, talking of dogs. <laughs> yeah, and that once the connection is gone, I think the tendency is to panic and panic is the worst thing that you can do because that's when you start fighting each other that mm. you need to perhaps you can help me on this how do you actually when you're in that panic stage you're feeling it's not working you're catastrophizing how do you find a way back mm. when i was studying my masters at relate we did a really interesting paper which basically said that fear of loss of attachment can come across as communication difficulties and one of the papers that I really liked was this idea of attachment injuries, so that we can almost have kind of emotional attachment injuries or loss of attachments, like we experience them as physical wounds, so kind of weaknesses or sore points. But in a way, that heightened state of fear of loss means that we don't communicate in our logical state, that we don't communicate in a kind of sensible way. And that's why when we're high in arguments, we talk about dueling amygdalas, the area of the brain that kind of when two people are fighting, they're kind of like going at each other, that we are not in a logical place. We're in that heightened, slightly frenzy state, which is why we say things we don't mean. And then we kind of come back down to resting state and we're like, okay, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean that. And I would say trying to find tools to get you to the more logical position to then have those conversations. So whether it's the Gottman Institute has brilliant, brilliant advice, Instagrams, blogs, worksheets. I, I'm often referred to them. The School of Life is another one that I really like. They have things like card sets for couples where there's a hundred questions about relationships. So using prompts to start because often the anxiety for couples is like how do we start this you know we don't know where it's going to go is it worth upsetting the status quo if we don't know how this will go so maybe we should just stay put even if it's not really working mm, have a look at my book can we start again i've got 50 mm. questions to fall back in love to and Perfect. these are questions they start really quite easily they build up and you reveal more and more about yourself because actually often a lack of connection is a lack of vulnerability and so if you can be vulnerable, if you can get past the fear and the anger, that's the way to rebuild a connection. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for joining me today, Kate. This isn't the end of the conversation because if you are a member of our supporters circle, you can find out the three things that deep down Kate knows to be true. But for the meantime, thank you very much. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.